Hey folks, and tonight's episode is brought to you by YesPleaseVintage.com. If you're in the States and a fan of vintage and upcycled housewares and clothing, give YesPleaseVintage.com a check for clothing, jewelry, homeware, and some really awesome finds. So go check them out now at YesPleaseVintage.com. And currently, if you spend over $60, you get free shipping on all orders. Hello and welcome to episode 55 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me of course is my co-host, the Professor Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello, hello, hello. On tonight's episode we go back to a Bruce Lee classic as we check out The Big Boss, 1971, as uh, Bruce Lee finally makes his big screen debut. But before that we of course have got to ask what you've been watching. And Stephen, since the last episode, what has been holding your attention? Because I know... I don't know if we talked about this in the previous episode because we are a little ahead just to uh, pull the threat back in our recording. So the release timings of uh, what we've picked up and stuff may not exactly uh, coincide with the real world, but never mind. But yeah, what have you been watching? I think I'm right in saying that you picked up your Gamma box set. I don't know if we talked about it in the last episode. but I don't think we talked about it, but yes, it arrived. It's a lot bigger than I was expecting. So I hear. <laughs> It's it's physically monstrous. I haven't I haven't delved into any of the any of the films on it yet, other than on, other than the one that I reviewed for Ace and Kicks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it comes in a lovely gigantic box that I have no idea where that is going to go. Um, it's even bigger than my History of Metal Slug book, so which I thought was the biggest book I was ever going to own. But hey ho. Um, it's got, but it's not. It's, it's got a nice sort of um, nice sort of hardback book that goes with it about the Gamera series, and then a hardback of five of the comic books, sort of more recent American comic books of Gamera. Um, haven't really delved into them, but yeah, really, really, really lovely set. I still think you probably got the better deal by getting the um, the Godzilla set, frankly. But uh, yeah, really nice, um, and you know. It's it, half the films on it I know are great, and half yeah. the films on it are less so. <laughs> uh, I mean, you say that, but I mean the Criterion Godzilla collection. It comes in that huge LP size book, and it's like, well, how the hell am I supposed to fit that on the DVD shelf? It's everyone I look at, it, they've always got it, like lying down flat because they just can't fit it on the shelf. Um, so it's currently still in its shrink wrap eventually i will at some point unwrap it but it it's sort of one of those things you just feel that you need an occasion some momentous occasion so enjoy it uh which i've yet to sort of find though i did appreciate the fact that arrow the same day they released their box it added all the gamma movies to the streaming service so that was really nice of them and i'm not sure obviously how you felt spelt about that since you just forked out a hundred odd quid for it but I'm <clears throat> I'm I'm old school, mate. There are things I can live with on streaming, and there are things that I have to physically own. Yeah. Even even if I never really open it or play it or look at it, and I'll still use my um my previously found versions, you know. But it's just it's just a nice thing to have. Um, because because I'm a guy, and that's what we do. <laughs> I have to say, moving house a couple of times really kills the collecting bug. I tell you that much. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I really worried about the day I have to leave this flat. Frankly, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> if only if only DVDs and Blu-rays were the worst of it. Well, I mean, the whole physical media thing is just an absolute mess at the minute. I mean, and before we came on tonight, I was like looking up a thought I'd uh, pick up a copy of Underwater on DVD, and of course it's just not available. And you think, well, how can it be? available to stream and download yet i can't get a physical copy of this film it's just absolutely insane and when you look at amazon now you're not even sure where your copy is coming from it could be any number of uh, places gone are the days when it came from amazon now it just seems to be like just one big trading post that uh that everything comes from no i agree um yeah, many a time it's a DVD or a CD's turned up, and it's like from Germany or from much further afield. And <clears throat> yeah, it's um, I've even had stuff which didn't even have English language on it at all, and it was an English film. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I guess sometimes you have to you have to check the small print and not just assume it. But yeah, outside of mainstream releases, it's hard, and and it's hard to get out of the habit of owning stuff. I. I um, I'm, I'm getting there, <laughs> but but sometimes something comes up and you just you just want to have the thing itself. There's a, something tactile about ownership, isn't there? Oh, definitely. There's certain titles that I want the physical copies of, and there's other titles that I know I'm probably just going to watch it the once, so I'm not too bothered about having a streaming mm. copy of. Um, the problem is, like with all non-physical media, it's sort of like, do you actually own the thing? Is it? Can it just be taken away from you? It's this is what constantly worries me: the fact that you invest all this time and money into obtaining digital versions of things, and then is it going to transfer across the new thing? Does it like just disappear? Well, um, that's absolutely happened to me um, in the world of music on uh, iTunes. I, I've purchased stuff um, from uh, specifically um, some Chinese music um, and. Apple ceased having a contract with um with with that company with with that record label, and which was fine and unnoticeable to me until I had a complete failure of my local storage. Had to redown everything from iTunes again to find out that about ten albums that I thought I owned, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I I was just renting them. And so Apple didn't want to share them anymore. Um, and that, you know, it, it's fairly unusual. I mean, for most people, 99.99% of the time, that's not going to happen. But but things, you know, people fall out. Um, I guess I guess um, we're seeing this with Apple in another place at the moment, aren't we? With their, with their fallout with um, Epic Games. Oh, my you God. Know, it's, <laughs> it's so unbelievably sad. It's just like watching millionaires argue over pittance really and it is but at the end of the day it's it's the end users which which struggle because they thought they 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 owned stuff and not not the game i understand the game free to play but people have invested in in things in 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 the, in the monetization i understand that but this is this is also fortnite and it, perhaps this is a sign you know go and play a real game <laughs> and not something where some some moron called Ninja is being paid a million pound, a million quid just to uh, to be seen playing this game. Um, well, I don't know if I was given the chance. 
I'll do it. Oh my god, it's, you can't say half of these streaming kids' names without just feeling dirty. It's like, and they they like try to legitimize it, and like the press it's sort of like Ninja or The Shroud, and it's like Christ, these kids haven't even got good online names. It's like God, put some effort into it. Where are the days of the Phantom Freak or the Film Freak or the Mystery Man or the Nuke the Yanks or whatever the hell we had, we came up with in like the nineties and stuff. Like when people are colourful uh usernames like Butterfly Serenade and you felt that these people had presence and now we just have like people just having like bad comic book names like Ninja. But those th- those names in the past were because there was an anonymity about it, wasn't there? You know, this this was an alternate version of you that existed online. So, you know, you could be this. Now these guys where well, you see their faces. I was um oh. <sighs> And then KSI. Their faces. I don't know why we're going to talk. We're going to be a couple of old men, but I was listening to KSI. I had a chat with um, uh, Louis Theroux on Louis Theroux's sort of um, lockdown podcast okay. he's been doing. And, uh, and the whole sort of early conversation was well, what do I call you? Do I call you KSI or do I call you whatever your real name is? I want to say his name's Kevin. It's not Kevin, but it's something normal. And he sort of was sort of going, yeah, well, I. Uh, and the answer was his real, his normal name is his name. This this KSI thing is is not even something he's particularly wedded to, from the sounds of it. <laughs> and you think, well, why have that? I don't know. That's his brand. He's stuck with it, I guess. But uh, yeah, this this sort of further argues the reason that we need to have this division between the Gen Xers and the Millennials. That Xenials needs to be recognised as a as a division. And I know that uh, the people with the fancy degrees and the letters at the end of the name say that, no, you can't because you've you got to have a certain amount of years between generational gaps to recognise. And I would say no, because of the technology, it's created this additional gap because you've got the people who created it, which was obviously the Gen Xers, and then you've got those who embraced it, which was the Xenials, who paved the way essentially for the Millennials who now can't live without <laughs> everything that we put in place for them so because of this i think it's really reflected my viewing this this week is um i went back and watched uh an old school anime uh the third of the devilman ovas with uh, aim on the apocalypse of devilman which i've actually put off for a long time i don't know why i put it off for so long especially because we had uh devilman crybaby come up through netflix so i really should have hunted it down before now but i finally Got to finish off the trilogy of uh, OVAs they put out for Devilman, which obviously started with The Birth and then The Demon Bird and with Apocalypse, which uh, came out in 2000, uh, but still retains that very sort of old school anime style coming out uh, in 2000. And essentially serves to wrap things up uh, for this sort of chain of uh, Devilman movies. Uh, If you're obviously not familiar with the premise, uh, basically uh, this boy um boy called uh, kira he has bonded with a demon to create this uh, altar this fusion of man and demon called devil man and uh, basically he fights uh, demons who have existed secretly in human society and now 
with uh, Devilman Apocalypse now revealed themselves to humanity and humanity responding in their usual calm and collective way have basically just gone to mass panic and started killing everyone. So if you're a fan of the previous ones, uh, don't get attached to any of the characters because needless to say they ain't going to be around long and I found this particular one to be a kind of a more throwaway entry. It's got some certainly some interesting moments and it's certainly fun to see Akira's devil man without the, obviously the humanity edge uh, to him as he essentially gives up the his humanity and lets his demon side run free and cause chaos although by the time we get to the grand showdown between um, Akira and Satan it basically just falls in him staring him down and then walking off which is kind of an anti-climax to uh, this whole saga and essentially just leaves the world in an apocalyptic state and nothing essentially resolves so at least when we look at the likes of devil man uh, Crybaby, it did more of a thing to resolve, resolve, give us more of a resolution for the ending, and also helpful in the sort of major gap that we get really between the demon bird and this volume, as everything seems to have gone to hell in a handbasket just between those two films, and very little is sort of explained as to what's been going on. But I'm guessing you've never seen The Devil Man OVA, Stephen. I haven't, but I can't help thinking you've spoken about it before. Okay. It sounds familiar. Maybe you've mentioned a previous one. I think it's because I talked about Legend of the Overfiend, which is on a similar sort of track. That's also right. you know, demons in modern day Tokyo. It certainly Devilman doesn't go as as hard as the uh, Overfiend movies. And I know there is a more full title, but I can't pronounce the actual main part of the title. So we're just going to stick with Legend of the Overfiend because I'm probably going to butcher enough names in this episode as we go anyway. So, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I love the, I really love the original OVAs. When I first saw them, like when the Batman released in sort of like the mid nineties, <coughs> it scared the absolute hell out of me because I had no comprehension of what I was watching. And this is sort of back in the days when the anime, especially in the UK, was just a lot of you know demons and tentacles and violence and cyborgs and ultra violence. It was just uh, there was none of the sort of cutesier anime that we have now I mean we hadn't even got like the Ghibli movies over at this point so people were excited by the likes of Kiki's Livery Service and uh, Totoro and you used to see the mentions of it and then you look at what we were getting and we were looking at like Gogo 13 and Crime Freeman is like we ain't getting those things over here that's for sure so I remember seeing like seeing like bits and pieces of it and just like, being absolutely overwhelmed by it and then returning to it when I was in college and just really got into anime just really uh sort of vibing with the grotesqueness of it but it still plays off on a lot of like uh the italian sort of splatter movies and things like um demons um in particular is a good one but i mean the actual anime is played on uh by gonage um and this one actually has the has uh the director of uh, Vampire Hunter D supervising as well. Um, although the director obviously takes on this, Ken Ishii uh, Takeshiti, um, is, he does a good job with the material, but it just seemed to lack the pacing and the, the fun of the first two, even though there's a scene with one demon getting a whole subway train in front of him, which was kind of amusing. But um, yeah, I don't know. At some point, maybe we'd sit down and watch these OVAs. I don't know. Maybe that'll be it. We'll put it up for a Halloween pick if see if you yeah, want us to do some of that. <laughs> you said that now. It's <laughs> versus like, <laughs> and you got the woman with the demon breasts. And well, stuff. I don't know. I mean that that whole, that whole sort of demon world 
spirit world, human world thing. It's quite a it's quite a Japanese yeah. trope, isn't it? Um, in in anime and but in, and in computer games, I'm thinking things like the Persona games. Um, sort of a similar idea that there's, there's, there's these two worlds, these two, and, and, and that they're spilling out over into each other. I'm, I'm certain other films as well. It probably all comes from you know in Japan. They're not they're, they're not technically religious in the way that we would think of it. They're certainly not mono monotheistic and monodeistic. But they they have this belief. You know, they have thousands of shrines, and there's a shrine for everything. And it kind of, you know, sort of, yeah, there's a shrine to make because there's a god of exams and a god of making jam and things like that. And and it kind of that's just a it's just a darker take on that, I suppose. So hmm. it's funny you should mention about shrines though, um, because something we were talking about um, on the lead up to this episode, we were talking about the um, Netflix documentary High Score, and they were talking about the making of Starcraft, uh, Star Fox, and they said he was like going through the shrines, and you know they got the uh, how would you describe them? The pagodas, is it? And and uh, you're saying, oh, yeah, wouldn't it be yeah. funny if you like flew through these? And the temple we was at was actually of a a fox god, and that's where Star Fox came from. Ah, there you go. See, we're just linking all your different podcasts up, mate. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to hear me talk about more about video games, please do check out Game War, which I co-host with uh, Kim Lowe. We're uh, in the moment in the process of reworking our format, so we've got some exciting times ahead ahead of us there for sure. Oh, it's almost as if you did this for a living, mate. <laughs> <laughs> the seamless seeking. Uh, but it's that's. I mean, that's been it, really. I mean, there's been a couple of other sort of series things I've been watching as well. I mean, I've been uh, watching a bit of Fire Force, which has uh, been really good. But I'm only about nine episodes into the first season at the minute. But I know it's one of the shows that the the kids all love at the minute. So, um, so that's been fun and um yeah i renewed my subscription to funimation because i needed to watch anime but at the same time i i can't be watching subs at the minute because it's just so exhausting being under lockdown and trying to watch subs is like like you watch five minutes or something and then you're just asleep because your brain just shuts down so by watching uh dubs i'm watching dubs and taking the lazy man option at the minute but when you're watching a funimation dub it's you know it's a it's a classy production all around so but what about yourself, Stephen? Anything else you've been watching at all? Well, yeah. So um, I think I might have mentioned this in the last episode. Like you say, behind the curtain, you, we never know when's now. When was time? Is time. really a concept now, isn't when it? This is going to be t- <laughs> it it really is, isn't it? Anyway, I've been doing some writing and some reviews, which is something I've been doing a lot of recently. Um, I've been covering the. Um, uh, the Edinburgh Taiwan Film Festival, which of course now is a uh, so much a virtual handy. festival. So you can you can watch stuff in your underwear. You don't have to get <laughs> although, dressed although up in... to see people, <laughs> and I don't have to travel to Edinburgh. Although that is a city I'd like to visit <laughs> one day. But yes, um, they did a really interesting program. Um, probably one more for me than you, sir. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing classy uh, fair then. Well, not not just that, but they've taken a very um, the different streams are very historical and uh, in, in terms of the the history of Taiwanese cinema. So yeah. there was yes, there was a there was a phase on um, new Taiwanese cinema. No, no Edward Yang, but they did have some other people there. But but actually, I I, I reviewed a couple of films. Um, as we speak, my first review just came out yesterday. 
Um, but it's a film I wanted to talk about. It's a film I'd never heard of before. You may have heard of it, but I think it's a really important film. Um, so from 1970, it's called um, what's it called? It, it's called A City Called Dragon. Although as a obviously has 37 other names as well, all related to dragon and cities and how many days you're going to spend there and things like that. Um, it stars um, Su Feng. Um, Su Feng, she is one of the um, one of the great martial art actresses, martial artist actresses, but probably not one that's on many people's tongues. Tip of many people's tongues, sorry. Um, so she's a Taiwanese actress. Um, she had a bit part in uh, Dragon Gate Inn, but basically she's in all King Who's Taiwanese films. So Touch of Zen, Fate of Lee Khan, Legend of the Mountain, Raining in the Mountain. She basically made 40 films. Um, she won a prize at Cannes for Touch of Zen. And then... Years later, after getting married and becoming a film producer, she um, she produ- uh, she she was the producer of um, Farewell My Concubine and won another um, prize at Cannes. And she's like one of the only women to ever do anything like that. Um, a city called Dragon is like this weird. Um, so basically, what happened was that there were a number of film directors who didn't like working in the in the studio system in Hong Kong in the 60s and early 70s. Um, most famous of all was King Hu, who, um, you know, we, we've spoken about him before uh, in um, uh, Come Drink With Me. Yeah. Um, so he, he let, so he's Chinese, but made, well, mainland Chinese, made his name in, within the Shaw Brothers. Um, after making um, Dragon Gate Im, which is sort of his one of his great great movies he moved to taiwan where they had a slightly different um way of working they had a film industry that actually had been on its last legs and it wasn't just him other others went across as well um and of course bridget lim went in the other direction but um although his first great film in um in taiwan is a touch of zen um but this film is made in between those two films it's not actually a king who film um, it's directed by a guy called uh, Chang Sun Tu, who was the assistant director on um, Dragon Gate Inn. Um, but basically, it's this—it's it's a wusha film, um, so it's all full of politics and it's full of sword play, and it's got a female lead. So you know, you th- we think again back to Come Drink with Me and things like that. But. Um, <coughs> Sorry, Su Feng is a very different character, so she's not a ballet dancer. No, she is she is a more traditional actress who, who who has some martial arts skills, but obviously the camera's helping her out. But it's a really really fascinating film. It it kind of just sits on the cusp of that Shaw Brothers action with bright red blood, and the more mystical Zen inspired films of the Taiwanese um, wuxia films of the same time but it, it sort of sits on the cusp of it um, and it's got a fantastic twist that I did not see coming although the uh, festival's program notes give it away which is a bit annoying but yeah really really good film um, one that I hadn't come across before um, and 
is 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 watchable on the um on the film festival's website i think there's a there's a cost for it but i'd really recommend it if you're a fan of uh sort of king who films even though it's not a king who film that was rambly wasn't it yeah, that's <laughs> I, I really, re- I really, really enjoyed it. There's, um, I, I reviewed another film as well, but I think I'll save that for our next episode. So okay. I've got something to talk about. But I really enjoyed that as well. It was, just, it's just a really, really good program, um, full of films that I never really heard of before. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's Hsu Su Sen. You know, there's a couple of directors in there that that you will have heard of, and there's some modern stuff. Um, uh, the Burmese director Midi Z has a whole, um stream and it's a mix of films feature films obviously the taiwanese um film board huge efforts into um resurrecting and um cleaning up and restoring a whole bunch of older films from the sort of the 50s 60s uh, and and earlier as well and they keep coming up at these festivals uh, and they're just really so much care has been put into them this film this the one i'm talking about that the, the colors are amazing and the sound um it, it's hard to explain but it, it 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 has this enhanced sound of um of ambient noises um so like if someone's walking along you'll hear them you'll hear the creak of their car or the shuffle of their feet really loud it's just really amazingly put together um i hope hope at some point they they get to release these outside of um outside of festivals and, and maybe onto a blu-ray or something like that but uh yeah so so good and um just just a really good program all around and uh, i'll probably be talking more about it next time fantastic um anything else at all is it just, just that oh i've been doing yeah, that i think that's that's about it i think um but like i say it's really hard to remember because i just time time as you say has become a a really strange concept at the moment we're six months in um, I even forgot it was a bank holiday the other day. Does it really matter anymore yeah. if you have bank every, holidays? Again, <coughs> I didn't realise it was six holiday. months until someone pointed out to me. It's sort of like, oh yeah, we've been on lockdown for like six months. I was like, really? Has it been that long? Yeah, um, we're, um, we're we're talking about going back to work week after next as of the time of recording, so mid mid September, really. Yeah. And and um, actually, all my colleagues have decided they don't want to go back. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> They've, um, I mean, they nobody did. wants to go back to to uh, work coffee when you've been living off gourmet coffee for the last six well, months. I, you I know. think that I think I think a lot of people found it very hard to start with, and they found it hard being with their families. I have a suspicion that the return to school has affected some of their decisions. <laughs> yeah, about to say because it's going to be a lot quieter with the kids going back now. Mm. But um, I think. You know, I, I work in the IT industry, and a lot of the people in the IT industry are, by nature, sort of not not herd herd beasts. You know, they're they're, they're loners, and they've actually found the ability not to, um, or the opportunity to just knuckle down and do stuff, and maybe run their own hours a little bit. Actually, quite attractive. But for me, I I, I yeah, I I need to get out of my flat. <laughs> I need. To... Do you think though that it's, that it's not actually about you know wanting to be around people and just the fact that they've turned into uh, the South Park kids on Make Love Not Warcraft? They're just like <laughs> really gelatinous masses now. That's or like um, I like to remember when Homer worked from home and he ended up in a <laughs> in the basically the, the ethnic dress. So and, everyone's uh, wearing moo's now. 
Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a bit of that. And there's also a bit of lots of people... All of us, I've noticed in the last month, people have got really obsessed about leaving their cameras on during meetings just to show that they haven't turned into something else. <laughs> <laughs> but it could all be fake. I don't know what people have been up to. But yes, it will be nice. Fantastic. Um, should we move on to tonight's presentation then? Let's 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 move on to tonight's feature presentation indeed. Uh, tonight we're looking at the big boss, the first starring role for the legendary Bruce Lee, released in 1971 through Golden Harvest. Um, at the time of its release, uh, Bruce found himself in a bit of a predicament as uh, the Green Lan- the Green Hornet had been cancelled four years previously. He had also injured his back. Uh, while weightlifting, and money was really becoming tight, especially as Hollywood were not really sort of warming him up to the two projects he was sort of pushing around. He was uh, basically trying to get his version of Kung Fu off the line, which obviously went over to Derek Carradine, uh, whereas a scouting trip to India for the production on The Silent Flute had really come back as unproductive. And it was really around this time that he was sort of like advised by James Coburn that perhaps he'd like to try his luck in the increasingly growing Hong Kong film industry. Now... At the time, he'd received an offer from from Golden Harvest. Um, the Shaw Brothers did also make an offer as well, but it was it was turned down by Bruce Lee as uh, as he felt that it was was not suitable. And really, Golden Harvest, knowing what they were on to, basically rushed into production uh, by signing Bruce up to two films. The first, obviously, being The Big Boss, and the second being uh, King of Chinese Boxers, which became Fist of Fury. Which is probably the probably the better known, and I think when it comes to like looking at his early films, it's the one people tend to go to. And even now, when we look at his filmography, people always want to talk about you know Fist of Fury, or they want to talk about Into the Dragon. Sometimes they want to talk about Where the Dragon, which is uh, obviously got its legendary fight scene against Chuck Norris. But because of this, I really wanted to go back and look at the Big Boss. Uh, because it just never seems to get talked about. It always seems to be like this forgotten Bruce Lee movie, even though it's, you know, very easily available and um, it's just the one that nobody ever really wants to talk about. So I thought we'd try and balance things out by being the show that does talk about the big boss. And obviously, for me, this is, I, I'm, <clears throat> I know I've just waxed lyrical about a martial arts film, but you know, the martial arts films aren't. Haven't traditionally been my thing. There's a handful of them I really enjoy, and when you bring one to my attention, I don't think I've—I don't think you've ever uh, brought one to me that's failed to entertain. But Bruce Lee himself is somebody I know about without really ever knowing about his films. Um, so it was really interesting for me to to actually see a Bruce Lee film. I know that's shocking, <laughs> or actually properly properly watch a Bruce Lee film. I, I feel. I've probably seen all the all the best bits in in other places, um, but actually to watch watch a Bruce Lee film from beginning to end, well, and and actually you know you've you've gone through it, but I, I found the actual story behind the film 
actually maybe even more interesting. Mm. <laughs> um, and because uh, yeah, um, I I probably know him more from from the Green Hornet. Really, I used to love the Green Hornet. It used to be um, used to be on BBC Two or something like that here in the evenings for a bit. Um, they used to do reruns of that kind of thing, and obviously there's a crossover with the uh, with the late '60s Batman show as well, which I know about. But what I didn't know was that in in um, in Hong Kong it was called the Kato Show. Oh yes, I mean <laughs> they were they were really really proud of of Bruce, and I think that's it's it's an important thing that you you state. You know, all all these other people we talk about, your Jackie Chan's, your Donnie Yen's, um, and, and and Summer Hung's, you know, who, who've had varying levels of success over in the West, were phenomenally successful in the East first. Whereas Bruce Lee really made his name in the West and came back to the East to, as 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 you say, to basically get on a on a local bandwagon. Um, so you know, he was he was loved and adored, but. This was made at a time which didn't sound like so good for him. Yeah, I mean, he had no clue that he had such popularity um, over in over in Hong Kong, as you said. That the reruns of the Green Hornet on TV had received this enthusiastic reception, and we also have to remember, like in the nineteen seventies, there's not a lot of Asian actors on television at all, much less in in films. Um, and Bruce is really sort of this sort of standout talent, and he's brought o- brought over to Hong Kong, and he does the chat so show um, second, does things like enjoy yourself tonight, where he gives an interview and he gives a ball breaking demonstration, and all this really sort of furthers his uh, the interest of uh, having Bruce Lee in Hong Kong, and I mean his childhood friend Unicorn Chan passes his CV over to the Shaw Brothers, and. As I said already, they wanted to put him on a long-term contract, but they were only offering about two thousand uh, US dollars per film. And it was at this point that Raymond Chow basically came up uh, on the screen, and he'd at this point he'd also left Golden, he'd left the Shaw Brothers to set up Golden Harvest, and aware that. Lee had turned down the offer from the Shaw Brothers, basically rushed in to make sure he got his offer in first, offering him 15,000 US dollars, which worked out they would get 10,000 for Big Boss and 5,000 on completion, the second film, which is obviously Fistful of Fury. And at the same time, they were filming these over in Thailand because it was basically a lot cheaper than shooting in Hong Kong. Which I think adds a real sort of interesting element to it. I mean, when we look at the other films, obviously they're all shot in, mainly shot in Hong Kong. So here we have um, Bruce in Thailand. And I mean, do you find like the change of setting sort of refreshing or does it all seem one and the same to yourself? Well, it's funny you should say that. One of the things I was what maybe it's the subtitles on the version I had, but... It's never really stated, as far as I can see, that they're in Thailand, <laughs> although it quite obviously is. Um, it obviously is because you can tell by the foliage, you can tell by the faces of some of the extras. Um, yeah, the ladies who work in the brothel, especially. Basically, who are literally prostitutes. They are not actresses. No. Apart <laughs> 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 um, apart from one of them, who was who is a proper actress. But um, it's never... You know, there, there's this... It's basically he gets off the boat and says, "This is a different country." Says the guy he's with, and uh, and and, and that, that that that's about it. And obviously, this might have played better to the Chinese 
people at the time where I guess they are still the, the workhorse of the world that travel the world and do the cheap manual labor jobs. And maybe it was talking to that, but it was really weird. But and it wasn't until thinking about it after watching, it, I was thinking, actually, yeah, this is this is a different setting. You know, this is um, th there's a mix of sort of a, a sort of pseudo jungle and palatial mansions because there's a lot more space obviously in thailand isn't there um and 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 then sort of there's a seaside resort aspect to it as well which is things we don't get in hong kong films at all um so yeah it's it's interesting it wasn't until i thought about it afterwards because i was trying to look where it was actually set because i don't i don't think it was very clear i assumed it was thailand and, and it does indeed appear to be but yeah, it was an interesting, interestingly different setting. Although it sounds like it made the um, made the actual shoot quite hellish. Yeah, just a bit. I mean, the film itself sees uh, Bruce Lee playing uh, Cheng Chao On, who's uh, moves to Pak Chong in Thailand, and he's been brought in to work at a local ice factory by um, his his cousin um, here, played by James Chen. And uh, he basically goes to work with his, his cousins at this ice factory only to discover that everything's not quite what it seems as we find out that the big boss of the uh, ice factory is using it as a front to, to uh, as a drug smuggling ring. And uh, it's really well discovering... Uh, it's a discovery made by his cousin, who uh, which leads him into a confrontation with uh, say Big Boss, and he ends up inevitably getting killed and setting uh, Cheng on this path of revenge. Now, the film itself has a kind of noteworthy amongst Bruce Lee fans has not been their favorite, and that's mainly because Bruce's uh, character has taken on a vow not to get in any fights at all. So, for the first forty minutes, you're watching Bruce Lee as a pacifist. Well, it's worse. It's worse than that, isn't it? <laughs> let's let's face it. For the first hour and twenty minutes, he pays. There's a little bit of secret punching and, <laughs> and stuff like that. But this this is a film which you spend a long time waiting for <laughs> the action to really kick in, <laughs> and it's about an hour and twenty <laughs> minutes. And and I guess the the other fella, I guess was. A big star. Yep, James Tien was um, a big leading a leading man, and when they had were obviously putting the film together. I mean, he obviously had these two big stars. I mean, you obviously got Bruce, who's been brought across as a, as a big star already, and James Tien had already established his reputation. And they basically looked at it, and they get to the halfway point, and they're sort of like, "Well, which of these actors are we going to go with?" And they sided with Bruce, and so James <laughs> James Tien got killed off. Hate <laughs> mm. could have gone the other way if they felt that. Uh, that he had really was sort of like shown his mantle of uh, Bruce and Bruce still had been killed and, you know, perhaps Kung Fu history would have been rewritten. But I kind of don't really want to see the film where James Tien is uh, your leading hero because it... And this, again, is so bizarre because we have all these traditional sort of fight scenes there at the ice bar and, you know, the local thugs turn up and you think, oh, great, now Bruce Lee's going to defend the ice... Um, Stan Lady's honor, and he's gonna kick some ass. But no, he pulls out his little Jade Emlet, looks at it, and he just like goes, "No, I'm not gonna fight." And then we have to wait. Where's James Chen doing some slack through as he leaps around the place, kicking people? And I, I, and I think this is again another disadvantage we had. If it was just James Chen on his own, I think perhaps this would have been more possible. But the fact he's put it against Bruce Lee. 
who is a very capable martial artist. So it's his um, his martial arts skills kind of pale greatly in comparison. Martial arts or not, and and it's hard to view Bruce Lee outside of his mythology, but quite clearly in this film, he has more charisma in his little finger <laughs> than anybody else. Um, he is a star, and I hope it's not because, you know, because I know who he is and because I know what he means and, and what a big deal he is. But it was just clear to me he's got more, you know, like I say, more charisma, more ability than anybody else in this film. And yeah, the whole structure of it is really, really dead weird because you've got this guy. He's made his name as a martial artist, like you say. He goes around chat shows and does martial arts. He's not only is he charming and a really good talker, but you know he goes around and, and shows off his martial arts. He's got a body of a god compared to everyone else who looks a bit like you know they've had a few too many beers <laughs> yeah the other one looks like everybody else in the film they're more so average joe bruce lee here is looking like he's carved out of wood um he's he's ripped he's he's ripped but... and it's just it's just just to put it all on the back burner for so long is just weird and then you mentioned about that jade amulet <laughs> Because every time he looked at it, an ice cream van appeared. Well, I imagine that's what the noise was. <laughs> because it's got this little little song, little little ding, 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 ding. <laughs> every time he um, he looks at the Jade Amulet. Until the point it gets broken. And then is basically not mentioned again. He There's a little bit right just before the final battle. We go, oh, oh my mum told me not to have any fights. <laughs> oh, right, I'm going to have a fight anyway. But it, it's just... I know a lot of these Hong Kong films were made up on the fly. You know, the, the, there may have been a broad outline, but you know what they're going to do today, how the story goes, is always up for grabs. And I think a lot of that did go on on this film, because quite clearly, that, the, when that film was originally written, that amulet was going to be a lot more important than just playing the little ice cream theme every time <laughs> he got it out. And and I think that, to me, that's indicative of the whole film. It just feels like this, you know, you've got Bruce Lee is is obviously a star and got the charisma and the film, pre- the, the, the motion picture presence, yeah? And you've got a kind of interesting story going on, yeah? Which also goes nowhere. <laughs> you know, they're, they're smuggling cocaine in blocks of ice. Uh, there's a whole thing about how and why would you set up an ice factory in the middle of the jungle? Is a lot of people that need yeah. ice. <laughs> yeah, but you could have said, you know, it's literally there's a seafront where it's much cooler and nearer the um because obviously I think they're shipping these abroad. I guess that's the whole mm. point, isn't it? That they're they're shipping this off to other places. Um, but why why have it in the hot and sweaty jungle? But anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but that's kind of interesting. There's there's some drug smuggling going on. There's there's a tension between the Thais and the uh, and and the Chinese and and it. And it really doesn't do anything with anything. In fact, what it'll do is it'll go and have a little subplot in a brothel, which is freaking weird. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, I but I don't want to pick holes in it because it's 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 not without charm. It's just not. I can see why it's the um, the black sheep of the family. Mm. It's just that constant. Oh, I'm not going to get into a fight because I bring I promise my mum I wouldn't fight. Um. 
and it's just like just do something already. Oh, uh, it's just like it's. Yeah, but 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 the question is why? Why what? Why have you made that promise to your mother? Because why has your mother thought been, he's been fighting <coughs> back home, and this is right, why he's okay. been shipped off to Thailand. Because he's basically right. made a reputation for himself as a troublemaker. So he's made this promise to his, his mother that he's not going to fight. And the, the amulet is the symbol of that of that promise that he's made to her. So when the amulet gets destroyed by one of the thugs, it's basically like just lets him off the leash. And he's able to just go and kick as much ass as mm. he wants. All the other kids, right, are all his cousins. I assume that... I assume they're literally his cousins, and this isn't just like a brother this, brother that kind of Chinese. They thing. are apparently uh, they are apparently his cousins, including the dopey-looking one, who's apparently the brains of the operation. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh god, like so. What what happens is is there's about six, six of them, and and a si- and a, and they have a sister, so she's his cousin as well, the love interest of of a sort. Um. And two of them see the the drug package come out during some oh, some shenanigans or something like that. It falls the off um, open. the uh, the yeah. the conveyor belt because Bruce because Bruce throws it too hard or something. <laughs> and um, and, um, and 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 they get done away with, right? And then and so now now there's only four of them left, or, or five, there's five of them left. And another two of them go off to investigate, <laughs> and they get done away with. <laughs> and you think, and 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 then they all come home because Bruce gets a promotion to shut them up. They come home in this dance, don't they? Dance down the road, saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah." <laughs> four, four of our cousins have just disappeared under mysterious circumstances, mentioning the fact that someone a month ago also went missing in mysterious circumstances, and maybe this is something to worry about. It is. That whole dynamic is really weird. And so what I got into my head was that maybe they weren't related and they were just boarding together. And it was just that sort of way of, you know, that that, that sort of those names get translated sort of, you know, Brother Elwood doesn't mean you're my brother, just means you yeah. know, you're, you're my dude, yeah. But but no, I was looking up, no, they are literally his cousins. So obviously whoever... So I, I don't know if it's Bruce's mother's sister or brother, or you know I don't quite know which side of the family they link to, but she's very hard on not getting in fights, whereas the other half of the family work very hard on not having much connection with each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well it means they've got more space in the house because there's like eight of them live in this tiny little house. No, but it's not. That's the other thing. It's not a tiny little house. So when Bruce goes back, right after 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 he's had the fight at the ice factory. He goes around trying to find them. He goes into the garden. He turns. It's a freaking gigantic mansion. But as you say, all eight of them, apart from the girl, have been sleeping in the same little room in little tents. <laughs> and, you, and I looked at it and I thought, why didn't they just spread out a bit more in the house? I mean, there may be more going on. I, I maybe they, I, I don't know. Very weird. And it's this whole... It's very gonzo, I think, this film. But not in a... Not in a kind of weird cinema kind of way. You know, like, we've both watched plenty of films, which are just nuts, yeah? This one just feels very ramshackle. Um, And and literally held together by Bruce Lee's charisma. Well, I mean, when we do finally get the the big... The big fights are when Bruce finally just remembers that he's a martial arts master, and he starts the big riot against the management at the ice factory, and all the thugs 
are getting beaten up. I just love the fact that in midway through the fight, a bus of more thugs randomly shows up to this uh, this brawl. Yeah. So this this is another thing that bugged me, right? <laughs> so apparently, this town in Thailand has ten Chinese workers, a thug each, a local thug each, and a prostitute each, because. Th- that seems to be the working pattern. If I was running a criminal enterprise and I had all those thugs, like sometimes they just sit outside in groups of four waiting for an instruction. You thought, work on the fucking ice cocaine deal. <laughs> <laughs> then you wouldn't have these troublesome Chinese people in that, that seem to go on strike every day. Um, and I don't, I don't think it was Bruce was particularly inspiring them to be, um, to become militant workers. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it, it's an interesting technique that the guy who's just led your worker revolution is the guy you're going to make the new foreman. Yeah, and I, get, I, I, I kind, I because... kind of see where they were coming from with that, but it, it's a really, really weird setup. There's this ice factory in the middle of the jungle. Again, pretty cool idea um, to, to hide the to hide the cocaine in it um, because. You know how how how's anyone going to detect that? And, and and it's not just cocaine though, as we find out later in the film. I mean, he's also where the hide all the bodies. Yeah, as well. which is another thing, right? So <laughs> I don't I don't want to pile in on this film because it was quite entertaining. However, right, so yeah, we have the son of the big boss, who's most rubbish character in the history of cinema because he seems to have no actual ability <laughs> in anything other than procure asking for two thousand dollars to procure a woman that he for his dad uh, which didn't make any sense but never mind um he killed so there's a there's a prostitute who's actually played by a proper actress who for some reason has a topless scene which actually is there to show you that she used to work at the big boss's house because he has this thing of flicking the end of his opium pipe onto the breasts of his maids and scarring them. Another weird thing. Anyway, so this prostitute... Sorry, that's the weird thing. You didn't think the Yorkshire flying ducks in the background of his wall was... Oh, what, to go with the... Yeah, to go with the bulls and the the bulls' heads and everything. Yeah, that was... The whole big boss thing is weird (laughs) enough, right? But he's... Got. So apparently the boss is like on a lives on a set of Coronation Street. <laughs> yeah, so. Jack and Vera Duckworth. <laughs> it would. I love those ducktails. Like only in like Manchester and Yorkshire you get those. That was very weird. Yes. Anyway, Bruce goes back to see this prostitute. Although, let's be honest, he didn't seem to be awake at any time of their lovemaking. He appeared to be knocked out because he's had brandy. Uh, not sponsored, but it was Hennessy Brandy, and he was completely zonked out, but felt that she was the only person he could come back to and talk about. She then gives tells tells him what's going on. The the son goes into where she is, and she misses him standing in front of her and throwing a knife in her chest. I'm pretty certain it should have been in her back, but how she didn't spot it, I don't know. But somehow he manages to kill her, chop her head off, put it in the middle of a block of frozen ice and hide it in the factory before Bruce got there, which is where he was going directly to. 
how did he do that? <laughs> it is impossible <laughs> that he could have done all that. And then I thought, maybe that wasn't her head was the second one that we saw. But when I looked it up, yes, it is. It's her head. So how did they do that? And also, why are they hiding? What are they going to do? Are they going to send heads out in ice blocks to China and hands? It just This whole thing has been made up by people thinking well, that would be cool. <laughs> and I had some poor editor said, "Oh my God, how can I make sense of this?" Ah, some Bruce Lee. Yeah, yeah, that um, <laughs> bloody weird. <laughs> and yeah, Werner, your turn. You bring some sense back to the film for me, please. Okay, so I mean, <laughs> I can. So, yeah, I mean, obviously he spends a lot of time, like you know, getting getting drunk and stuff. And I mean, it's kind of an interesting thing, you know, that if you know you can't beat someone in a in a fist fight, you know, you just bring them into your you in a circle and just get them drunk and you know blindside them with attractive women and steak dinners. Um, and I know, as I said, there were nowhere we had some had like well, the Bruce Lee fans and they it's a big gripe whenever like Bruce Lee's associated with alcohol because he didn't drink so. It'd be really interesting to know what they made of this scene and obviously it's a betrayal here. But no, when we finally do get the, the showdown, I find it very similar in many ways to the final showdown of um, Enter the Dragon. I thought a lot of the movements were the same. A lot of people bounce around on trampolines and... Oh, and, uh, and not just people. Have you remembered the dogs on trampolines? When... <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Uh, yeah, this is um, you you yeah. I I I think there's I, I think we're we're pretty much working out the reason. It's not just about the deification of Bruce Lee that the Bruce Lee fans possibly don't bring this one up, but uh, we haven't even mentioned the Terry Gillingham um, opening credits either for this. I film. don't remember them. Do you remember where it looks like um, one of his Monty animations Python. from Monty Python? Where they basically have this one cutout of Bruce Lee doing oh, yes. a high kick, and then they just basically have it fly around the screen and just see how many times they can pop out this one image of him uh, while oh, while playing this brassy kung fu uh, number. Um, so it's clear that when when it came to the title scenes, they'd already decided who was going to be the main draw of this picture. So yeah, it's um. Oh, it's a it's a funny old piece of work because you know you and I both know what Hong Kong films were like not just during this period but but for the next 10 15 years until like the late 90s um you know the, the, the this this film feels like it's got way more in common with with american films sort of b b movie black exploitation films almost you know surprised Pam Greer didn't turn up in the middle of it or something like that you know the way it shot the film stock it shot on the 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 nature the ropey nature of the plot the ropey nature of the acting left right and center but there's always one person who is clearly a bigger star than anybody else um whether that's actually them being a star just that they've got more I have another question so okay at the end of the film Pretty much everybody dies. Yes. There's one person I don't know what happened to them, which was the guy who was basically running the ice plant, who probably has the second most lines in the film. 
but he's just forgotten about because I don't believe he got in any of the fights. No, I think he just sort of disappears, he does, he just... doesn't he? Because he was the original foreman and he just sort of disappears as soon as Bruce takes <laughs> over. Because, I mean, he wasn't much of a foreman, he just basically hit everyone with and, a stick. And, uh, and said, but... Yeah, I phoned the police. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah but the, people don't really ask a lot of questions when it comes to like where people are going it's sort of like oh yeah I found the police there's not much real and as we, and as we see at the very end if you want this. to get the police it's really easy <laughs> the armed police will turn up in two cars loads of them if, if, if the pretty lady goes and asks them where's the rest of the... why did any of the Chinese people just go to the police <laughs> well I mean, we do obviously get that very traditional Bruce Lee ending, where if you know you can't can't kill people as honourable as it may be without suffering sort of punishment, and obviously in this one, as in much the same way as Game of Death, he ends up being arrested by the police. I think the only one of his films where he's not either arrested by the police or dies by police shootout um, would be when we look at and fingers end to the dragon and i want to see where the dragon as well he doesn't end up getting arrested at the end of it and i think that's mainly because he's out of the quarry that one so the police haven't got to him at that point but yeah it's really weird when you watch his films and like normally when you watch like western action movies you know the the action wanders off with a girl and you've got like some 80s soft rock playing um which is apparently supposed to entice you to buy the soundtrack, which you're never going to buy, and you just like see him wander off in the chaos. Where the Bruce Lee movies, he always ends up getting like arrested, like at the end of Fist of Fury, he dies, be he's uh, shot to death, and then um, Game of Death, he's also arrested as well. So it's very weird to see that, even in this like early movie. Yeah, so. I mean, I, I, I guess that that's 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 the karma coming back to get him. He's he's been a bad boy, and he he should have looked after his mother's jade better but um yeah i can't i can't say he comes out of this film his character comes out of the film looking very golden because all bar one character i think he's dead at the end of it apart from that missing foreman fella the the the, the, the three people survive this film <laughs> out, of the, out of the total car well i mean we have the big boss too where uh, the big boss actually somehow comes Too-y. back <laughs> yes, yeah, so make of that what you will. Yeah, does he have does he have trampolining um, dogs as well? Well, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I have to love the big boss's amazing fighting style of of basically um, challenge someone and then stab oh, them no, with a yes. knife. <laughs> that's the only other fight because... scene in the movie. Where he chose his son. No, no, that's not how you do it. You do it like this and does some flippy floppy. What do you call it? Sloppy foo. And then stabs them with some his... slot through, or slack yeah, through. Stabs them with some size or something. He's quite up his sleeves. Oh, dear. as I, as I said, it's uh, it works. I mean, obviously the big boss here is played um, by Han Yang Chi, who also served as the film's fight choreographer as well. Um, a little bit of fun stuff on the on the background because this really wasn't a fun film experience for for Bruce at all. I think coming over he thought perhaps he was going to and obviously going off the hype of uh, surrounding you know everyone rushing to sort of sign him up I think he was expecting more luxurious sort of settings for the film which really this really wasn't at all um, it's basically it was a tiny little village that they shot the film in and there's no real sort of clean running water at all um, and it was uh, filmed in Pak Chong which is uh, about 
you know, about 90 miles northeast of Bangkok, and it's on the edge of the Khao Yao National Park, which is one of Thailand's oldest reserves. And basically, he just he was there for about four weeks, and he sent constant letters back to his wife, Linda, describing it as a lawless and imperious and undeveloped village. Uh, due to the lack of food, he really started losing weight, and he was basically trying to substitute his diet through, like, canned meat and uh, vitamins. Which, thankfully, he'd had the set to sense sort of bring a, bring along. But when they were shooting, I mean, there was just constant mosquitoes. There was cockroaches everywhere. The tap water was yellow. I don't know. There's a saying about not drinking yellow water, but probably would have served well in this 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 circumstance. And partway through the the film, the director was changed. Um, originally, it was directed by Wu Cha Hai Xing, and it was replaced by Lo Wei, who was also the husband of the associate producer Lei Lang Hui. And Bruce was originally skeptical of Lo and basically described him as a fame lover and another so and so, one with an almost unbearable air of superiority. Which brings us back to a few episodes back when we were talking about you know Bruce Lee's representation in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and how the Bruce Lee fans were like horrified of how Tarantino portrayed him and you were saying like you know there's this sense that it probably would have been a real sort of cocky so-and-so and it wouldn't be too far off his actual sort of personality so yeah that's that's definitely how I've seen him portrayed in other films which peripherally deal with him like in the Ip Man films not not necessarily the um, Donnie Yen ones but the sort of the host of other ones that were around and in films like Bruce Lee my brother he was a bit of a cock <laughs> that's, 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 there's, no, there's no there's no getting around it um he 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 was a very confident young man and uh probably didn't suffer fools gladly and it sounds like he was surrounded by them here <laughs> Um, in terms of the film and locations, the Ice Factory is still there, as is the uh, Big Boss's mansion, which is actually a um, a Buddhist temple. So uh, you can actually go and still visit that. The brothel, however, did burn down. So um, unfortunately, you can't go and see that. But apparently, where the crew was, uh, was, was staying, they were actually quite nearby. And they were basically said that the whole thing was just really smelly and unhygienic. And the crew actually paid the prostitutes. The prostitutes only charged about fifteen baht um, per client, but the crew paid them uh, paid them about one to two hundred baht to appear as extras in the film. So, as you said already, Stephen, those were real prostitutes that are in the film. Yeah, apart, apart from the main one, who who is a legitimate Thai actress who's um, who's got some very strange, well, not strange, she's a very pretty lady, but very Eurasian looking, isn't she? She looks quite different to the others, <laughs> like the big, like the ones that are just. Um, yeah, the the ones that the, the big boss has permanently massage him do just look like women off the street, don't they? Bless them. <laughs> oh, those massages are so funny to watch. It's like the most half baked massage that he gets off these uh, these pros- his prostitute of um, yeah. harem. Oh, his maids. That's what they're called. Those maids. Oh, but... Okay, but uh, yeah, Marilyn uh, Bautista. Mm, that's right. Who plays uh, Sun Wu Man? Yeah. But uh, um, yeah, they're they're, they're you but... know. And, and we, it's it's no worse than half the white fellas that we see in Hong Kong films, is it? That clearly have just come in off the street and <laughs> and can't act a pen, can't act for toffee. But I'm not going to say half half the um half the genuine actors here aren't really doing a great job. But uh, hey ho, <laughs> when they 
were doing uh, filming, Bruce was actually got sick during filming. Um, he managed to cut his hand as well, so he has that noticeable plaster throughout most of the film. And when we see the sort of final fight scene between Bruce and the big boss, he'd actually got so sick at um, at, at that point that through like the conditions and. Uh, sort of injury that he had he was like basically a lot of the film was being shot in close-up to sort of disguise how injured he was and the fact that they worked it into the sort of fight scene that it made it seem like more fitting that it sort of matched his character sort of like worn out and exhausted appearance so it kind of played to the played to the advantage but the last 12 days they actually filmed scenes in bangkok which was a complete turnaround and bruce lee actually enjoyed the uh the great stand step up in in quality as he got to enjoy like breakfast in bed and basically had all this sort of luxury that they hadn't had uh when they were obviously filming in pak chong and it's uh these scenes which were filmed in bangkok are mainly sort of like the um scenes where he's been sort of winding and dying when he becomes the foreman of the ice factory right so that the, the inside um, and the, basically yeah the, the uh the, those scenes and also the ferry scenes as well where like he comes off the boat at the start. Okay, was was the uh, but the mansion's in Pak Pak Chong. Interesting. Yeah, the mansion was in Pak Chong because that's um, was a Buddhist okay. temple. And uh, yeah, it's still there. You can go and visit it. Because you sold the area so well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> I would imagine it wouldn't be expensive to stay well, there. That's a prostitute. It's only fifteen baht. That's like. <laughs> My God, that's like about fifteen p. <laughs> it's if that's yeah, if that's an example. I mean, we, I'm not yeah. saying go and visit the prostitutes. What I'm saying is that's an example of, of how much something is there. Then uh, yeah, I think uh, I think we can have a nice holiday there, mate. I think Thailand is one of those those places where you can like run around and be infinitely more richer because as I said, it's the 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 sort of. Um, it's not. It's not a particularly rich country, so your so money goes a lot. Yeah, certainly in Thailand, that's very true. And um, yeah, it does make you, and again, makes you wonder. Um, obviously, the trying to bring it back a bit to the story is is how poor is it in Guangdong, where where these um, where these workers have come from? Because <laughs> if if Thai if Thailand is um is 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 hiring immigrant workers, my God, how little must they be getting paid? Well, you look at that, and you also have to consider like Roger Corman's New World Pictures, where were many filming films of mm. in the Philippines, because again, it's cheap, and there's you don't have to worry about things such as like health and safety if you <laughs> film in the Philippines. Uh, there's a documentary called Machete Maidens Unleashed, and it's all like, as John Landis says, the Philippines where life is cheap. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were my um, I weren't weren't going Harvest making another film at the time. Oh no, it was Shaw Brothers, wasn't it? Were making a film at the time. Shaw Brothers were they were making a um, Muay Thai uh, movie as, at the same time, uh, Duel of Fists. And I mean, Bruce actually didn't like the sort of fighting style, the sort of local fights. He still felt that the when it came to like the kicks and um, punches, everything was very sort of choreographed. Uh, and he felt that obviously his particular fighting style was a lot more superior. In, in, in fact, and there are obviously the stories of like fights breaking out on on set. And I mean, if you watch Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, they kind of play at this angle. But apparently, this never oh, happened. I mean, we we say that, but they don't. The film doesn't really allow any martial arts to really be shown off. I mean, Bruce Bruce does a lot of posing, 
and uh, and and the other fella, the the other main actor, does a bit of posing. But a lot of this is on trampolines. A lot of this, you know, that the, clearly the foley artist was getting paid by overtime because you know the the thwacks are coming, and there's clearly a foot between some of these hits. You know, um, it's it, it, it's a shame that Bruce. It does feel like Bruce is on his own here with a bunch of game, but not great fight actors no and i mean there's a lot of things that you know bruce didn't like like there's a scene where he knocks a guy oh, through a wooden uh wall oh, and he's got a perfect that, I, I thought i mean i did laugh <laughs> and i laughed at it and with it at the same time but my god whose idea was that it's like <laughs> so, it's like a laurel and hardy yeah, I mean... film <laughs> it's it's these sort of things that you know, Bruce. He tried to fight against the director, obviously, about their inclusion in the film. I mean, you also have the now notorious saw in the head sequence, which is, as far as I'm aware, has never been restored to any existing prints. I mean, there's different prints out there which have restored a lot of the violence, such as the bodies being dismembered and encased in the ice. And uh, there's a public domain copy which has got all that sort of cut out. It does make so. you wonder. So I, I was reading about this. Uh, to be honest with you, I, I like like I said earlier on, the story around this film is almost infinitely more interesting than the film itself. Um, and and like you say, it was um, it was it was sort of a version of it was was in Dragon Dragon the um, is it, uh, who's the guy that's in that film. Jason, Jason Lee. Lee. I want to say Jason Lee, but then I was thinking of Kevin Smith's mate, and I thought. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I think guy is called Jason. I think that's Jason Scott Lee. <laughs> it, oh God, yeah. Whatever. Um, uh, I've, I've lost my train of thought now. So what were we talking about? Uh, the oh, about that. Sorry, sorry about that. So, so there is this. There is this scene of of, of apparently of a, of a man's head getting sawn through with the ice saw which apparently is in a later scene than where I'd have imagined it to be but 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 no it's the second brawl at the yeah, ice factory it would when, make, it, when it shows it up it would make and... more sense to be when they're chopping the bodies up much earlier on but never mind but it's never been seen other than in the initial premiere or something like that and it does make me wonder if it actually exists at all and that's not just a promotional gimmick to make Oh no! You can see film stills. Oh really? Okay. There's like the stills of the actual shot that um, are out there. It's just it's the actual particular shot has never been been restored into the films. Now, apparently the the footage is supposed to be lost. However, there is apparently a private collector who does own like the original screening copy of the film, um, and at the moment it's sort of been sort of caught up in copyright issues at the moment because back in 2004 they were trying to put out um, a version called The Version You've Never Seen um, and it ended up getting getting cancelled so despite the fact that it's never actually been included in the film there are actually stills and you can find them easily if you google them mm. online uh, the sort of shot of Bruce with this eyesore on the guy's head right but um, yeah, basically, it would be part of the second brawl that you have in the ice factory. So when he returns to the mm. uh, the ice factory after, the second after time, finding the heads and, and, the uh, and everything, yeah, he gets um, involved in the in the in the brawl with those guys, and he was going to pick up an ice saw and he would 
put it in the guy's head and you pull it back and it would be like this huge gory sort of sequence but it uh, was unfortunately ended up on the cut room floor along with the scenes of the bodies being cut up with the ISIL which would later get restored in later cuts so, of so, the film so what's really um, weird is is that that, that that scene would be contemporary within the structure of the film with the bloke getting kicked through the wall and leaving his silhouette and it's not a jagged silhouette viewers it's it's a very smooth it's, like it's a very smooth outline. perfect outline of the fella um this, the, 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 they just don't just doesn't mesh and and there were bits of the film i was laughing my head off at like the jumping dogs the guy goes through thing oh maybe i've misread this maybe this is a comedy and then knowing that the you know i, I don't think the version i saw had, had an awful lot of gore in it it had um a lot of suggestion it had a lot of the old classic Shaw brothers bright red blood and stuff like that I was, I was a little disappointed in, in the lack of graphicness but you know maybe you have to remember when it was made but yeah it, it's just all over the place it's it's and, and we we're used to that with hong kong films but this just this did it without without charm is that the right word i don't know it's, it's weird i wanted to love it and it's i a... didn't <laughs> I think my biggest problem with the film is just the fact that we have to wait so long for Bruce to do anything. And it's just that you have, you as I said before, you have all these scenes being set up where it's all like the thugs turn up and you're like, oh, he's going to sort of whip out some nunchucks and beat some ass. And it just never happens. And it just feels like constantly it's all like James Chen's like, like steps up and he's like, don't worry, I'll handle this. <laughs> And you have to watch this guy flail around and basically look at any moment like he's going to get like jumped by these guys he's now decided to take on, while Bruce just sits there and looks kind of bored. Yeah, it just sort of, it he just sort of thinks to like leap in well, there. Yeah, there's, there's, there's the one bit, isn't it, where he sort of secretly does a couple of quick punches to knock a couple down and just smiles knowingly at his mate. But oh, that other character, oh my god, that's 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 the character who can solve someone's gambling by walking into a gambling den, exposing them as using loaded dice, pays a guy to dis- the, the gambling guy that he wants to stop gambling to disappear and thinks nothing's going to come of it. <laughs> and they act shocked when they get jumped by a bunch of thugs later on. Oh, God. Cara, what a what a weirdly written film. But like I say, these things are, yeah. these things are, are very gonzo. So, obviously, from here, we go into Fist of Fury. And I think it, with Fist of Fury, it pretty much more defines the Bruce Lee that we all know and love. Um, and really sort of made him as this this real sort of defining, um, sort of almost like folklore sort of hero. The fact that you had him there and he was taken like on the evil Japanese. As is obviously the fitting with the time. And you've got that iconic sign of him like kicking up the destroying the sick man of asia sign or when he goes to the park and it says like no dogs and no chinese and he like high kicks the sign and it just like obliterates in i think a lot of the more with the with fist of fury it's pretty much more de- defined who bruce lee was as a martial artist we get there's none of this sort of waiting around 40 minutes for him to do stuff he's just sort of straight in with the high kicks and taking on hordes of people at uh one time including a young jackie chan who um in I want to say one of the first of his two uh, beatings he received from Bruce Lee <laughs> over the course of his uh, the films he did to go because he's also in Enter the Dragon as well um, as is Samuel Hung who I only recently realised 
after years and years of watching that movie, I never realised that it's Sammo Hung that he's fighting at the beginning of the film. Yeah. Okay. But then again, also, I didn't realise Sammo Hung's also the Chinese fog in the start of The Man from Hong Kong as well. Australia's only entry into the Kung Fu genre. Oh, Sammo Hung is... Um... <laughs> yeah, I was reading about him in martial law the other day. <laughs> about, um... Yeah, anyway, that, that's the thing for another show, but yes... I think we, at this point, I mean, we've covered more Samuel Hung movies than we have, like, Jackie Chan or Bruce I, Lee I movies. I think so. we absolutely have. So we'd certainly establish ourselves as Samuel fans on this this podcast. But anything else that you want to talk no, about? That we haven't no, talked I, about, right? I, just, I, I just want to reiterate, I, I was incredibly disappointed with this film, but I was still entertained. Um. The apps, you're absolutely right. The main problem is you've got Bruce Lee in a film and you're being generous saying he starts doing the action in the 40th minute because to me it doesn't happen to about an hour and 10 minutes in. <laughs> um, and the, the it, it feels just like a patchwork quilt of all sorts of different ideas and themes and implementations. <laughs> but, you know, it's not dreadful. It's just second rate if that makes sense you know it's not it's not i i certainly wouldn't mind if you made me I'd certainly watch it again quite happily if it was on tv on a or, or as part of a, a as, as a wider marathon or something else um i think it clearly shows that the that that mythology around bruce lee at this time is absolutely justified he's clearly the star of the show whether or not that was the um, th- that was the initial intent of the makers of the film, um, so yeah, it was it, it was okay. It's a solid C, you know. Um, mm. We we've watched much worse. We'll watch much better. Um, and when you say that the Bruce Lee enthusiasts sort of don't really talk about this film, I think it's quite clear why. Not enough Bruce Lee. It's a difficult film to go back and watch. It's like when you watch like an early John Woo movie, um, for example, it's, um, and you like to try to compare it to like his later works, and you're kind of disappointed it hasn't got the same sort of masterstrokes. And I think this is the problem with uh, the big bosses. You're so used to this idea of what Bruce Lee is because you see everything from like Fist of Fury onward um, of his his small filmography, and you sort of get this idea of who he is, and then to see him like being held back so intentionally, it's a bit of a a jarring experience but uh yeah it's it's still an interesting movie for sure i think it's one that's worth checking out and not just as like a completionist note i mean certainly there's worse films that you watch sort of a more completionist note such as you know like game of death 2 for example mm. um which is just sort of made up of that like kind of room footage rather than having anything to any any sort of like proper sort of context of being a Bruce Lee sort of movie so but um I think I don't want to say this is like a good starting point for Bruce Lee because I would say like watch you know Fist of Fury first or watch Enter the Dragon first and then go back in the others but I think certainly it's it's, it's an interesting enough film to what to to watch if you're watching the Bruce Lee filmography but at the same time it's not the most essential film in the and filmography. It, and it, I mean, it's not sure. so he's got a huge filmography and I think one of the other thoughts I had after watching this was if Bruce Lee had not have died if Bruce Lee had continued on acting and let's say he put another 10 films into the bank yeah I'm not saying he'd 
they'd all be fantastic. But we probably wouldn't even remember this film. This wouldn't be. This would be. This would be. Oh, that was his first film, but it really got good. In Fist of Fury. It would be. Like it'd be like a what from Russia with Love is the bomb yes. movies. Yes. It's sort of like yes, the characters, the characters there, and the moves are essentially there, but it's not. It's not. It's not the format we have. It's basically, you know, what what Goldfinger is to Bond movies, Fist of Fury is mm. to Bruce Lee movies. It sort of put everything comes together, and it's all like, you know, this is this is the uh, the format we need to follow. And I think when you look at Big Boss, it's all like we got the character there, but we just don't know quite what to, what to do with him yet. So yes, I agree. I agree. Although I do like oh. Rush Would Love, but I know what you mean. Oh yeah, really? nothing happens. Right, Rosie Kleb. It's a train. There's a long fist fight. Um, all I remember is just two gypsy women fighting. <laughs> and... No, that's, it's, it's, it's all right, but it's it, it was disappointing after. But it is not. It, it you you're right in that it doesn't have that. Uh, it's a much more grounded film. It's a very it's a spy thriller as opposed to a James Bond film. In, in the sense of what we know, yeah. but I think I think it's worth worth a look. But that's a different podcast, completely different podcast. <laughs> Make sure to join us on Bond. Well, after we finish our battle royale one, well, maybe we'll have to try and reach out somewhere else. <laughs> think I'm doing Bond per minute? You're gonna you think, think I'm doing another per minute podcast? <laughs> You're gonna think I'm, but we could reach out into another area. Anyway, if any if any of our listeners have got any ideas or something, we could do. Oh yeah, because they, let's see with Alice and so forth, they've tried to have us almost watch Godzilla vs. Marvel <laughs> on and we're now looking at the Avengers trilogy for episode 75 so <laughs> careful what you put in their hands, Stephen. Oh, I don't know, we can always ignore it, can't we? The internet's deletable. Who's going to be... We don't ignore No, we don't. That's why we've watched some of the things we've watched. But obviously, um, next episode, it's your turn to pick, Stephen. What are you going to It pick? is. And some events in the last few weeks, again, the time difference has changed what I was going to look at. Um, I was actually interested in looking at another Johnny Toe movie. You know, after not doing it for 50-odd episodes, I was going to bring another one to, to the play. And I was, going, I was going to, and I still might do this at some point. But I was going to show the, the other side of Johnny Toe, and I was going to have a look at My Left Eye Sees Ghosts. Um, but of course, a um, couple of weeks ago, um, director Betty Chan died at, at, at quite an early age. Um, and I thought we'd have a look at one of his films um, that Chan, Chan sort, of, sort of grew up in, in, in TV and film working alongside Johnny Toe. And his first film was produced by Toe, um, which is a bit of a Hong Kong classic. Um, a moment of romance, um, and and which has one of the classic scenes of you know, before there was a meme. It <laughs> the class there was a classic scene of uh, the bride and and the motorbike and everything um, is is a thing. So yes, I'd like us to watch um, a Benny Chan movie to to recognise a, a recently passed figure um, and major figure in Hong Kong modern Hong Kong cinema. Fantastic. 
so uh, that's obviously coming up on our next episode but in the meantime uh, you can also check out all our previous episodes at our, our blog which is agentsinmafilmclub.wordpress.com uh, you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook in particular is really fantastic because we've got a real fun group going there and uh, we've got some really fun interactions and discussions happening there as well um, and probably also where we tend to post a lot of our stuff as we post not only our announcements new episodes but also fun news pieces as well and and also on the blog you can find uh, other fun pieces of writing like we've got Derry Brooks Movie Vault, we've got the mixtape we've got the dark side of Asian cinema and we've also got the anime vault as well so plenty to read and check out there as well and uh, of course if you want to check out uh, listen to more of myself and Stephen talking about Asian cinema you can also check out our other podcast uh, or the bonus podcast of this show which is our battle royale podcast where we are going through battle royale one dvd chapter at a time while also drawing comparisons to both the book and manga as well um uh, so you can check that out either by looking for for it on its own which is battle royale podcast or you can check it on our feed um which you obviously follow this show through and uh whether you happen to be listening to us make sure you hit the like and subscribe button and maybe leave a review as it all helps raise the profile of the show but until next time, thank you for listening and thank you to my co-host Stephen. Pleasure as always. And until we come we meet again, make sure you wash your hands, wear your mask, and look after yourselves. But until then, good night. Hey! This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.